It is Wednesday, January 3rd, and this is the Washington State Indivisible Podcast. I am your host. My name is Stephen Cox. Hello. Happy New Year. It is very good to be back. I hope you guys had a wonderful holiday and a restful break. I know I did. This week, we speak with Anila Afzali. She is executive director of the American Muslim Empowerment Network about how to combat the rise of Islamophobia in America. And because it is the new year, we will usher it in with a dose of good news. Since the start of the Trump administration, Islamophobia has sadly been on the rise in America. Here in Washington, there was the so-called March Against Sharia in Seattle of June last year. And more recently, a group of men have begun showing up every week to a mosque in federal way, shouting anti-Islamic insults at the worshipers, including their children. We talk now with Anila Afzali about her work countering the rise of Islamophobia. Anila is a graduate of Harvard Law School. She has recently been named the executive director of the Muslim Association of Puget Sound's newly launched American Muslim Empowerment Network, or AMEN. Concurrently, she has recently been traveling to churches in western Washington, along with Pastor Terry Kylo, to speak to congregations about Islam. We are very happy to have her here with us on the show. Anila Afzali, welcome. Thank you for having me on, Stefan. Very excited to join you. Well, we're really happy you're here. So uh, before we talk about you and your work, I would like to briefly discuss the anti-Muslim demonstrations at the Federal Way Mosque. Who are these individuals who have been showing up? What specifically are they doing? I I understand that they are heckling people who go in for prayer. Yes? Uh, That's correct. I myself have not been there, but uh, of course I've heard about it from others who have attended both the mosque uh, and some people who've shown up in support. So what the problem was is it has been over a month now where certain protesters, two people in particular, uh, who are known to have a lot of uh, other opportunities where they have stood outside mosques as well as even churches uh, and and show up at anti-Muslim rallies and events as well. Uh, But these folks had shown up to the Federal Way Mosque uh, where they stood with signs and they were yelling things at uh, mosque goers, mosque attendees, as they were showing up, including children and women and families coming to pray and coming to worship uh, during Friday services. Uh, These protesters were showing up with uh, very anti-Muslim material that they were shouting and sharing and and, uh, doing this for a while to the point that uh, they were trying to, we believe, they were trying to uh, get a reaction, an angry reaction from the Muslim uh, mosque attendees. And fortunately, uh, the mosque attendees did not take their bait and did not react in anger. Instead, they did exactly what what the Quran commands us to do, which is to repel evil with good and to show forgiveness and kindness even to those who may who may hate us or treat us un, uh, unfairly or unwell. And there have been groups of counter-protesters who have been showing up consistently working to drown out the message of these men. Uh, uh, tell us a little bit about your, your thoughts about these folks who are showing up. Yeah, well, my thoughts about them is that they are amazing. They're heroes. They're people who are standing up uh, in solidarity and in support of a community that is being marginalized, both here locally and, of course, across our nation. Uh, We are seeing the highest levels of hate crimes against Muslims uh, in our nation's history, and attacks on mosques are at uh, high levels as well. Uh, So these people are basically showing up in support and solidarity. Uh, They're protectors, essentially, who are putting their values on the line and showing up and standing in solidarity and saying, not in our neighborhood. 
we are not going to allow people to continue marginalizing or demonizing or dehumanizing in some instances our Muslim neighbors. Uh, and uh, the way that it started is uh, I had a friend of mine, uh, Kathia uh, Geller, reach out to me and uh, connect me with somebody, Aaron Albanese, who was interested in organizing some kind of response to the fact that they had heard about these uh, protesters showing up to the mosque uh, in, in a couple several weeks back to back. So they decided, you know what, we don't want to have this going on and happening without a response uh, of the majority of people, sort of who we believe are the majority, everyday Americans who uh, support unity and religious freedom and the right of each person to pray and worship as they wish. Uh, so these, uh, Aaron and Katia, essentially connected with me, and I connected them with some people from the mosque in order for them to uh, organize these kinds of responsive protests, these counter-protests of solidarity and support and love and unity. So we have had uh, groups of people show up every single week since the protests, uh, uh, since they organized them. Uh, and uh, now I think this is the third, this week will be the third or fourth week that they are doing this, that they are having this counter protest. Uh, and they said that they're going to keep going until the protesters no longer show up. So it's been a beautiful showing of support and solidarity. And honestly, it's one of the many manifestations of these kinds of uh, showings of love and kindness that give me strength and inspiration and hope, because it reminds me that while there are people who may attack and demonize and seek to divide us, we are in the end united as a community, as Americans, as people of, of good, basically. Yeah. And I also should mention that both Kathia and Aaron are members of Indivisible and Aaron Albanese in particular is the executive producer of this podcast. Uh, and so well, wonderful. <laughs> yeah. It's very important work that they're doing because, as you point out, uh, Islamophobia is, is very much on the rise in this country right now. And uh, you've been recently going to churches across the state with Pastor Terry Kylo and been speaking about Islam homophobia with something that you have informally called the Faith Over Fear Roadshow. Uh, tell us about this and where the idea came from. Sure. So this roadshow has been an opportunity for Pastor Terry Kylo and myself to go through uh, throughout Western Washington. We went to 11 different cities in the fall of 2017, just this past fall, uh, and uh, we had the opportunity to meet with our neighbors in different cities, and it was really wonderful to make those connections, and we're actually planning next year to expand on to Central Washington and Eastern Washington as well. Interesting. So you're going to be expanding statewide. I I'm curious to know... What what sorts of things that you, you've been talking about when you go to these events? What, what sorts of things are you saying? Sure. So part of what we've been doing at these roadshow events is really exposing the multi-million dollar industry, uh, the, the core network of groups who are behind uh, what is dubbed the Islamophobia industry, who are promoting and profiting off of a narrative of fear and misinformation and conspiracy theories against Muslims and Islam in our country. And they've been doing this for a while now, uh, about a decade, uh, more than a decade, I should say. Uh, and they've been spending millions of on millions. In fact, in five years alone, they spent over $205 million. Now, who specifically are you talking about? Are you talking about right-wing radio hosts? Uh, are you talking about people like uh, Alex Jones? Who, who, are you, who are you referring to? 
So we're referring to organizations like Act for America and individuals like Pamela Geller and Bridget Gabriel and many others. Uh, there's actually a chart that I'd love to share. I, I bring these uh, charts, these posters with me wherever we go, and I'd love to sh- send you a copy or a picture of those that you could post for people to look at specifically and understand who the groups are. I absolutely so the will. The kind of radio talk shows that you were asking about, they are part of the echo chamber. They're not these individual groups who are sort of coming up with these anti-Muslim uh, conspiracy theories and the talking points. So the groups we're talking about are the ones who are sort of originating this information, and then it's going and it's being heard and, and distributed and propagated through an entire echo chamber. And that's where some of these right-wing talk show hosts and, and even left-wing uh, talk show hosts uh, really promote some of that same talking points and same material. And it's also resulted in anti-Islam bills in many states. In fact, there have been about more than 120 anti-Islam bills introduced across our nation, and 10 states have passed these kinds of anti-Islam bills. So this is really having effects. So this is an entire industry that is sowing the uh, division and fear in our country and profiting off of it. Uh, and then there's an entire echo chamber that is also distributing that information. And that's why we're seeing this rise in hate crimes and, and the presentation and discussion of Islam and Muslims in the media is another thing that we talk about at the roadshow as well. So that you see the double standard that applies uh, uh, with Muslims versus non-Muslims in a lot of different areas. Issues. And we talk a little bit about that on the roadshow. We also talk generally about some questions that people may have. Uh, so we give people the opportunity to ask whatever question they may have. What, what sorts of questions are people asking? Uh, a lot of questions uh, generally tend to fall into a certain categories. Uh, one category that a lot of questions seem to fall into is uh, what is Sharia or something related to Sharia. Mm. Uh, and that is a concept that a lot of people misunderstand in large part because of this entire Islamophobia industry that has used Sharia as a way, as a mechanism uh, to spread conspiracy theories. So what they do, the way they do this is they take a term that is in a different language, in Arabic, so people don't know Sharia, they don't know what it is, and then these groups, these anti-Muslim groups, give it a horrible definition and then promote it and use it as a way to spread fear among people, saying, oh my God, you know, this, this is a, a fearful term and this is something we should all be worried about as Americans, when in fact the reality is not, not that at all. Sharia simply means Islamic teachings. So me being kind to my parents, me praying five times a day, me giving in charity, me helping my neighbors. These are all part of the teachings of Islam, and that's all Sharia is. That's simply what it is. So when people say they're against Sharia, for instance, they are essentially saying they are against me practicing my faith in our beloved country that is built on religious freedom. And that, to me, is more un-American and unconstitutional than anything Mm. else. (laughs) Well, another term that you take on is jihad, right? Correct. That's another term that we do get questions about and that is uh, similarly used and manipulated uh, by people who are anti-Muslim to spread misinformation about Islam and Muslims. So jihad literally means struggle, like a holy struggle. Uh, It does not mean holy war. That concept is completely a contradiction in terms in Islam. Uh, So that is not the meaning of jihad, even though that is the way people try to promote it. Uh, In fact, the struggle, that inner struggle, where we sort of uh, struggle every day to repel evil with good, uh, to give out of that which we love, 
to to fast during the long summer days of if it falls in the month of uh, long summer days of Ramadan, uh, to to pray five times a day even if we are very very busy. Those are all that whole that struggle that we have that we all have. And as Prophet Muhammad himself taught us, the greatest jihad is overcoming our own weaknesses, our own ego, our desires. That is truly the greatest jihad, the major jihad. There is a, a, a minor jihad, as Prophet Muhammad described it, a lesser jihad, and that is the jihad, the, the struggle that involves uh, physical confrontation. And that only applies in very limited circumstances and situations of self-defense or protecting others. And there's a whole sort of uh, the rules of justification that come into play, and you have to uh, abide by the conditions. But even in any case, as, as Prophet Muhammad taught us and as Islam teaches us, uh, that inner struggle to do good is really what that term is really about. I'm sorry, that was a horrible, long-winded way of saying what I wanted no, to say. No, no, it, was, it, it wasn't at all. <laughs> I'm glad that you took the time to clear that up because I think a lot of people, the first time that they heard the term jihad was in reference to the 9-11 hijackers. Uh, correct. And, and what I want to clarify there, too, is that if, uh, that Islam specifically teaches us and Muslims believe and uphold the laws of the land in which we live in and firmly uh, reject any kind of act of violence against civilians of any nature whatsoever. Like, that is absolutely against the teachings of Islam. Uh, so and so that was a perverted view of Islam that they felt that they were following, is what you're saying? Exactly. The same, the very same way that you have groups like, you know, the KKK doing things in the name of Christianity sure. that I don't believe are consistent with what Christianity teaches, or the Lord's Resistance Army doing that, or uh, Westboro Baptist Church, or many other organizations uh, that are deviant, cults essentially, uh, engaging in evil criminal behavior that goes against the very tenets of faith that we believe in. And uh, Muslims around the world wholeheartedly, categorically, and have repeatedly rejected that kind of notion uh, of uh, engaging in that kind of violence. Instead, they uphold uh, peace and believe in peace for all and uh, uphold the laws of the land in which they live, just as Islamic teachings command us to do. You've intentionally selected smaller, more conservative towns in the state with people who have maybe never had contact with a person of Islamic faith before. How have you been received by and large? Yeah, and, and that has actually been really, really interesting because that was part of our goal, our strategy, was to get out to cities and places where people might not have this kind of opportunity to engage a Muslim directly and ask questions that are really on their mind and address some of their uh, concerns or fears or uh, get a, gain a better understanding. So we weren't sure what to expect. And I will say for the first roadshow event, we were in Longview, Washington. Uh, and I had heard things about, you know, people saying things like, oh, you know, make sure you have a bulletproof vest. And, and just some other comments like that uh, because of the fear and concern that people had. And I will say my mom in particular, she has been very, very fearful for me and how uh, people will react to me going out publicly and openly uh, as an American Muslim today in hijab. So in light of all of that, there was definitely the fear and concern going into it. Um, but I have to say 
that the response, the reactions have been overwhelmingly positive. In fact, we have had so many people come up to me, come up to us, both Terry and myself. They've come up to us and shared just how important the two hours that they had with us was, how transformative mm. it was to their thinking and to their sort of views on things, um, and how much it opened up their mind and really inspired them uh, to want to look at some other information sources and, and also to sort of understand how we really are all united and, and to recognize Islamophobia as a threat to all of us as Americans. Like this is not just an issue for Muslims. In fact, that's one of the reasons, one of the uh, points I address in the roadshow is why other people should care about Islamophobia and a recognition of how Islamophobia hurts every single American because it attacks our shared American values. It makes us less safe. It makes us fearful, which leads to uh, people giving up more of our rights and liberties and freedoms as Americans. So it really is an issue of concern for all of us. Um, and when we've had our our neighbors in, in Longview and Port Orchard and Mount Vernon and many other places uh, attend these kinds of events, um, it has just been really powerful and moving. And I've been, I've been very uh, moved, even to tears at times, uh, by some of the people who came up afterwards and simply said things like, I've never met a Muslim. Can I give you a hug? Mm. You know, things like that. It was really, really powerful and moving and beautiful. Uh, and it just, again, reinforced in my mind uh, this notion that people are just being misinformed. They're not bad people. People are good. I genuinely believe that everybody, uh, you know, that people are, uh, on the whole are good. Uh, and there are neighbors who've just unfortunately been misinformed by this whole industry that is profiting and promulgating this narrative of fear and divisiveness. And when we're actually able to connect on that personal human level and they get the chance to directly ask me some of their questions and get them addressed and get yeah. a, gain a better understanding of things like Sharia, um, that they recognize how much we have in common. Well, it sounds like that fits very neatly into the work that you're doing with Amen, and uh, that is uh, the American Muslim Empowerment Network. You have recently been appointed its executive director and that's part of MAPS, the Muslim Association of Puget Sound. Tell us a little bit about what Amman is and what its mission is. Sure. So uh, uh, MAPS's uh, Amman initiative, we launched it actually at the end of last year. So it's been all uh, about a year now that Amman has been in, in existence. And we actually launched it after we had our own sign at the Muslim Association of Puget Sound, MAPS. Uh, we had our sign vandalized, and it was actually vandalized twice uh, in less than a month, unfortunately. It was attacked, and the second time uh, was caught on camera even, on video. Uh, in any case, uh, in light of that, in light of the growing anti-Muslim sentiment and rhetoric in our country and even proposals, anti-Muslim proposals, and uh, just a lot of what we were seeing that was really disturbing, uh, uh, MAPS decided to launch this initiative with, with me leading it uh, to work on a few different things. So it has four areas of focus. Uh, number one is coalition building, really helping bring people together of different backgrounds uh, to unite and fight against different forms of hate and bigotry, including Islamophobia, uh, racism generally, xenophobia, anti-Semitism, and more, um, and, and really mobilizing our friends and allies to take effective action to fight against these forms of hate in our country. Uh, number two is uh, education, education about Islam and Muslims, because unfortunately, the majority of our fellow Americans do not personally know a Muslim and do not know much about Islam. And like I mentioned, there's this whole industry spreading misinformation. Right. So in light of all of that, that's a 
recipe for disaster that we're seeing uh, its effects play out. So in light of all of that, the education about Islam, about who Muslims actually are, about Islamophobia, this education focus is really important. Uh, the third area of focus for Amen is uh, leveraging media in a proper way. So unfortunately, Islam is the most often mentioned religion in mainstream media, and the overwhelming majority of that is negative and even defamatory. Mm-hmm. Uh, in fact, one study that analyzed the New York Times found that in the course of 25 years, the New York Times, a relatively liberal paper, the New York Times portrayed Islam and Muslims worse than cancer and cocaine even. Wow. That's how bad the, the coverage is. Yeah. And so you're working to combat that. Exactly, to leverage media in a better way. And then finally, to uh, empower future leaders of America, to really build people who are committed to justice, because justice is a mandate of our faith in Islam, um, and really getting people united to and, and prepared and trained uh, to take on sort of the, uh, the, the uh, mandate of justice in Islam. Well, the work that you're doing is fascinating and very inspiring. And I'm sure that there are people listening who are wondering what they can personally do. What can people do here in the state and in America to combat these forces of Islamophobia? Oh, thank you for that question, Stefan. And I actually absolutely love that question because that's one of the things I always try to focus anytime I give a talk. Uh, people who've heard me may have heard me say that. Uh, and that is essentially that we really need to be action oriented. It's not enough to say that we're against anti-Muslim hate and bigotry or that we're against racism or anything else. We really need to act on it. And now it's more important than ever. Um, I remind people that the population of American Muslims in our country today is roughly the same as the Jewish population uh, in uh, 1930s Germany. Mm. Uh, And we're seeing some of the same kind of dehumanizing commentary and rhetoric and policy proposals and everything else as well. So this really is a time for people to stand up and try to make a difference uh, to prevent any kind of harm like we've seen in the past. We know what happens when good people don't act in the face of this kind of dehumanization machinery that is taking place. Uh, And the way that people can help, you know, I tell people this, that as bad as things are right now for Muslims in America, it's also an inspiring time to be alive. Like, I actually say this, I am more proud now than ever to be an American Muslim woman. Uh, And in part, it is because never in my lifetime have I felt that each one of us individually have as much power and potential as we do today to really make a difference in what is happening. So some concrete steps that I give to people, some specific action that they can take to really try to make a difference on this this issue. Uh, Number one is to to visit a mosque and, and meet some Muslims, meet their Muslim neighbors. Uh, and there are many different ways that they can do that. There are a lot of different interfaith events happening right now, including through our mosque, MAPS. We do a lot of interfaith activities. We have MAPS open houses where we invite people to join us so people can uh, sign up to our listserv, our, our newsletter, uh, and be informed of those kinds of opportunities, but really getting to know their Muslim neighbors because that personal connection can make all the difference. Sure. And we have many stories, countless stories, of people who were even anti-Muslim who once they actually had the personal connection, they been transformed in a really positive and powerful way. Sure. And I think that speaks to the fact that bigotry and Islamophobia are easier when you reduce someone to an abstraction. But when you get to know someone as an individual with a human face, a lot of that tends to disappear. Exactly. Yep, exactly. And that having that human face also makes it a lot less likely that you will be manipulated with false information. Sure. 
Because when people are saying one thing and then you're seeing actual, the Muslims that you actually know who are behaving very differently, uh, then you see that contradiction and you see sort of the misinformation that is being propagated, the propaganda essentially out there about Muslims. So that's number one. Number two is to really learn about the Islamophobia industry, this network of anti-Muslim groups. And people can go to islamophobianetwork.com to learn a little bit. Uh, That's islamophobianetwork.com or islamophobia.org and really learn about this. And what I would love to do, Stefan, is to include a uh, resource sheet for people that I can send to you that maybe you can connect with the podcast so we can include that. Absolutely. And listeners can find the resource sheet as well as both websites that you just mentioned on the SoundCloud page as well as the website. Wonderful. So that's number two. And number number three, and there's many other uh, actions that people can take, including supporting organizations like mine who are out there on the front lines doing some of this work uh, or speaking up politically uh, in response to things like the Muslim bans 1.0, 2.0, and 3.0, uh, and many other legislation that is anti-Islam as well. So those are uh, other ways that people can get involved. But the one that I really like to highlight and emphasize the most is this point, uh, really using the power of mainstream media to reach audiences beyond our usual social circles, which oftentimes become, you know, little echo chambers. Uh, And the way people can do this is by simply writing a letter to the editor or an op-ed or a, you know, article in a church newsletter or whatever platform people may have. And in their uh, articles, in their stories, in in what they're writing, uh, what we are asking people to do is to just speak about the lies and contributions of the American Muslims that they know, to do that humanizing that we were just talking about earlier, to help put human faces to the people who are being dehumanized right now in our country. That is actually one of the most powerful and positive things that people can do. And that can be really, really effective because we know right now that facts and information and data and statistics alone, that they will not change hearts and minds at all. It doesn't matter how much I share about what Islam actually teaches or the real source of threat in our country or any of these kinds of data and facts. That does not matter when people are filled with emotion. And, and really what could change hearts and minds at this kind of state when we are in this kind of uh, situation uh, is humanizing stories. It's the personal connections that we talked about, and short of that, the humanizing stories. And every single one of us has the ability to do that. All you got to do is send something like letters at seattletimes.com. It's simply an email letters at seattletimes.com, and you write something like, you know, two paragraphs or three paragraphs about the lives and positive contributions of the American Muslims that you've met, that you know, you know, things like, I know this Muslim who's a lawyer, or this one who's a doctor, or this one who works at a homeless shelter, or this one who feeds, uh, uh, does a Christmas dinner, whatever it could be. These kinds of ways to really humanize our Muslim neighbors, for our fellow Americans. And it's especially important to do that with communities uh, that that, uh, may never have met a Muslim themselves. So sending things to middle America through through, uh, mainstream media sources like USA Today or, you know, other ones like that, New York Times even, uh, wherever, just to be able to provide these personal stories 
because personal stories are really what can change hearts and minds. And, and that's what I would ask every single one of your listeners, especially because Indivisible has been so active and so proactive in many ways, in a very positive way, uh, in really reaching out and making a difference uh, politically and otherwise in our country. This writing these op-eds can really be a way to have a dramatic impact in changing the discourse and the, uh, the media double standard that we see. Uh, this, this is a way every single one of us can use the power of mainstream media and really amplify our voices uh, and not go so much into the theological arguments or debates or, you know, argue data or things like that, but just share personalizing, humanizing stories and emphasize our shared American values. That is one of the most powerful tools that every single one of us have and, and can use uh, to really make an effect in, to really have an impact in combating Islamophobia. Well, that's terrific. And I, I want to thank you for all of the work that you're doing. I want to thank you for all, all the incredible information that you shared here today. And uh, I want to thank you for being on this show. Anila Afzali, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. This was enjoyable, and I uh, very much appreciate all you are doing and all that Indivisible is doing as well. So thank you. Here are some of the voices of the counter-protesters who have shown up to the mosque in Federal Way. I'm here supporting my Muslim neighbors because I think it is very important that they know that they are supported by us and not by the people who come over here to harass them. I believe that helping others feel safe going to their place of worship is the right thing to do. It's also okay to not have faith to worship. That's okay too. What's not okay is telling anybody else that they have to live by your standards. That's not okay. The reason why many people have moved to this country is to have freedom. And for me, it felt so wrong to see other people harassed just for doing what they would have done in their own country. And they have come away from um, horrible conditions to be free here and in their own home now, they're being harassed. So a quote from Niemöller is one thing that I would love people to read. First they came for the Jews, but I did nothing because I'm not a Jew. Then they came for the socialists, but I did nothing because I'm not a socialist. Then they came for the Catholics, but I did nothing because I'm not a Catholic. Finally they came for me, but by then there was no one left to help me. So I feel like we need to stand now for our Muslim brothers and sisters, and we shouldn't wait for them to come for us. Amen. So that's why I'm here, and I will continue to be here while they're being harassed. In order, we heard from Patty Larson, Julianne Pearson, and Kathia Geller. I will add as a very positive postscript that Anila has informed Aaron Albanese that these counter-protests appear to have been successful and that the men have now stopped showing up each week to harass the worshippers at the Federal Way Mosque. And so with that, I think we should keep the ball rolling and end this week on our dose of good news. We will start with Tuesday's announcement that Utah Senator and fourth in line to the presidency, Orrin Hatch, will be resigning. Now, this in and of itself is good news for a laundry list of reasons, not least of which is that Hatch is one of Trump's biggest supporters. Hatch said at one point that Trump's will likely be, quote, the greatest presidency we've ever seen, not only in generations, but maybe ever. He also was one of the key architects of the tax scam. 
Now, the rumbling is that Mitt Romney will run for the seat and could be a thorn in Trump's side. Uh, Romney has called Trump, quote, a phony and a fraud. But as we have seen, Republicans tend to vote like Republicans once they're in office. So I will just say that while it is probably a bit of a pipe dream to think about a Democratic candidate winning in Utah, they did say the same thing about Alabama. Hmm. Oh, and speaking of Alabama, remember a few weeks ago before the Senate election when Roy Moore's wife, Kayla, asserted that she and her husband couldn't possibly be anti-Semitic because one of their lawyers was Jewish. Well, that lawyer just told the Washington Examiner that not only did he vote for Doug Jones in the election, but he was also actively raising money for him. Oh, and fun fact, that attorney was actually standing at Doug Jones's side during his acceptance speech. Fun. And finally, here in the state, Washington Republican Party Chair Susan Hutchison will be stepping down. There is a lot of speculation as to why. Uh, Jim Bruner of the Seattle Times noted that she may be in line for an ambassadorship. But whatever the reason for her departure, I am moved to remind everyone that she was the one who downplayed Trump's Access Hollywood comments when they became public because, quote, he was a Democrat at the time. So let's just hope that whoever ends up replacing Hutchison holds him or herself to a slightly higher standard than that and maybe even isn't, uh, I don't know, a craven Trump apologist, a Falcon dream. Anyway, as I mentioned at the end of last year, we have a lot of work to do this year. Uh, by most accounts, the White House is nervous about some big gains coming for Democrats in 2018, but we are still looking at long odds, so this is no time to be complacent. we got to get out there, we got to be knocking on doors, making phone calls, pressuring our members of Congress, doing whatever it takes. I know I am ready, and I know that you are too. So let's do this, and that is this week's dose of good news. And that will also do it for this week's show. If you would like to have more information about the show, head over to IndivisiblePodcast.org and you can subscribe while you're there. As always, the email address is IndivisiblePodcast at gmail.com and the Twitter handle is IndivisiblePod. The Washington State Indivisible Podcast is a production of Get Creative, Inc. The executive producer is Aaron Albanese. Thank you again to my guest, Anila F. Sally, and special thanks to Catherine Esterly-Williams. And thanks as always to you guys guys for listening. I miss you guys. We'll talk to you next week. Bye.